Welcome to another SPAC Insider Podcast. I'm Nick Clayton, and this week my colleague Marlena Haddad and I will be speaking with Sean Harper, CEO and co-founder of Kin Insurance. Kin announced a business combination with Omnichannel Acquisition Corp. in July. Omnichannel Chairman and CEO Matt Higgins also joins us to discuss the SPAC side perspective on the transaction. Kin is applying machine learning and data science to the homeowner's insurance market, one that has stubbornly resisted technological change for decades. We talk about how Kin has vaulted over the high barriers to entry in that industry and how much a direct-to-consumer business model could shake up the business. Take a listen. All right, so to start things off, Sean, I just wanted to get into your background a little bit. You know, from founding fee fighters to carry on to two checkout, you have a lot of experience in fintech. Could you just walk us through that journey a bit and how that brought you to the home insurance market? Yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean, who? Uh, so I grew up programming. I was just a nerdy kid. I went to pr- program at an early age. Got really into tech, and and that was it. That was that was my jam until I went to college. And I went to college at the University of Chicago, which is probably one of the nerdiest schools around. <laughs> And huge on economics, right? And so, and I just got hooked on economics when I was there and started doing a lot of like financial internships. Like I worked at Goldman, I worked at Credit Suisse, I worked at a hedge fund. And coming out of college, I was like, I, you know, there probably is an intersection here. <laughs> Found myself at the Boston Consulting Group working on a lot of these reinvention projects uh, for credit card companies, insurance companies, other areas of financial services. And I just sort of, I guess I just sort of fell into it, right? And I, I, I love it. And the reason why I love it is because finance is such an important part of people's day-to-day lives and it can always be made more efficient. And I love it as a technologist because if you look inside a bank or a software company, these are all software companies in disguise, right? It's all being done on the computer and it should be super efficient. These companies should be amazing at software. But what you find when you go in there is a lot of times they're not. They're not really good at software. So like in our space in homeowners insurance is average competitor is a hundred plus years old and they're not great with technology. And if you walk around, if you go to one of these big insurance companies and you walk around the halls, which we did, cause we had like a year basically to come up with the idea for Ken, um, you'll find all these brilliant people and many of them are really frustrated. And the reason why they're frustrated is cause they can't do the cool stuff that they want to do because the technology that's in place at the firm won't let them. And so, you know, I, I think I'm going to keep doing this. I love it. So, uh, <laughs> you know, coming out of the consulting, I worked at a VC firm, did a lot of fintech stuff there. Uh, my company, Fee Fighters, was a payment processor. And what happened in payments is amazing because payments sort of used to look the same. It was all these old companies running a lot of really old technology. Customers were unhappy. They were underserved. It was very, there were a lot of middlemen in the industry that took a lot of the, the money away from it. And, and it got completely appended. So if you look at the most successful payments companies right now, they're all tech companies. They were all started recently. You look at a Stripe, a Square, you know, a Toast that just went public. You look at PayPal, which is sort of the grandfather of them all. And that's really a space that's absolutely dominated by tech companies. So I think the same thing will happen in insurance. It's been slower to come to insurance. I think because maybe insurance is uh, a little bit of a harder industry to enter. And, you know, insurance has a lot of barriers to entry. It requires a lot of capital. 
the regulatory regime is complicated because it's regulated on a state-by-state basis. So I think it's been slower to come, but you can see it coming. Like last year, I think there were $10 billion or more of, of VC investment in insurance. And, you know, we started this company a little bit more than five years ago. We were sort of at the early end of that, but I, I think it's here to stay, right? Like if you look at insurance 10 years from now, it will be unrecognizable uh, relative to the industry today. It'll be so much more techie, be a lot of new companies, customers will be a lot happier. And that'll be really cool. It's exciting. So Sean, just going off of that, I'm curious to hear more about uh, how technology has changed in the homeowners insurance industry and how exactly has it lagged and why has technology penetration been so much more difficult for homeowners insurance rather than let's say renters insurance or auto insurance? There's really three, there are a bunch of ways, but the three main areas where tech really helps in, in homeowners insurance mm-hmm. is first on sort of marketing, sign up, user experience, right? Like you used to have to get insurance for your house. You used to have to go talk to a dude in a strip mall. You used to have to fill out these questions about things about your house. It was really inconvenient. The marketing is really inconvenient, right? It's so untargeted. I get like so many State Farm mailings every year, yet State Farm doesn't actually want to underwrite my house. So that's the first part, right? And and if you can really solve that user experience, that sort of only marketing to the customers that you want, that allows you to go direct to consumer, right? Which is a much better experience. And also you save a lot of money because you don't have to pay those agents in the strip malls. The second part is uh, underwriting and pricing. And so where that really helps us is in our ability to bring in much, much more data. So in the old way of doing it, you'd have maybe 40 fields of data that were all self-reported by the agent or the user. That's not really a great way to do it because first of all, it's not that much data. Obviously, homes are like really complicated. They're all different. They're all built differently. You can't encapsulate all of the knowledge about a home in just 40 fields of data. Also, asking the user is probably not a great way to do it. Like there's a reason why when you sign up for a credit card, they don't just ask you like, hey, do you usually pay your bills on time? Because of course you're going to say, yeah, I'm like super responsible. I always feel like that's silly. So why do we do, why do we rely so much on self-reported data in the insurance industry? So what we're able to do is totally different. We're able to manufacture and source thousands of fields of data about every home. We can really understand how resilient that home is going to be to different types of weather that might strike it. Because that's really what you're insuring against with homeowners is, is damage due to the weather. And so it's more data. It's also a lot more reliable, right? Because it's coming from known sources. Now they're not all perfect, but mm-hmm. at least they're unbiased and they're of known quality. And they're also often redundant, right? Like I might have five different ways of understanding the shape of somebody's roof. So I know once I've compared all five of them, we have a pretty good idea of what the true state of somebody's roof is. And then the third is in claims. And claims right now is done super manually in the industry. Something bad happens to your house, you notice it, you call your insurance company, a couple of days later, hopefully, or more, a guy in a pickup truck drives up and goes and does all this stuff manually to try to figure out the state of the claim. What we're able to do is totally different. We're able to use images that are uploaded by text message by the customer and aerial imagery And that allows us to actually adjust these claims a lot faster, which saves us money, is a better user experience, especially in the hardest scenario is when there's a big storm or there's a big fire and there's a lot of claims all at once. And that's when that automation really, really helps you because you're just able to settle them a lot faster versus, you know, sometimes it could be, you know, a month 
the old way before somebody even comes out to analyze the damage. And so it's really inefficient. So those are the three areas where we see tech really helps in homeowners insurance. I think the reason why, uh, there are a couple of reasons why the industry has been pretty slow to adopt. I think, first of all, um, it's a hard industry to enter. Second of all, the companies that are in the space uh, are pretty old, right? And they're just sort of fine doing things the same way that they've always done it. You know, they, most of these companies make money. You know, some of them are growing. They don't really have a reason to change until an upstart comes along and starts doing things differently. And then I also think just demographically, it lags behind a lot of other areas of financial services because you buy homes later in life. Right. Like I didn't buy my first house until I, I'm 41 now. So I didn't buy my first house until I was 36. Okay. Well, I got my first auto insurance when I was 21, probably. I got my first credit card when I was 18. And so, you know, as people's ex- expectations with respect to how technology serves them evolve, it just is hitting homeowners insurance later because, you know, just because of the time in life that people start buying homes. And you guys are in California, Florida, and now Louisiana. What made you decide on those states and what factors present in those markets do you see in other markets I might make as expansion opportunities? Yeah, so a few things. So first of all, we like big states. Those are all big states. So Florida and California are both like $10 billion markets on their own almost. Florida is a little bit more than 10, California is a little less. So we like big states. We also like states where there's um, a higher average cost of insurance because that means that all the cool stuff that we're doing on the tech side actually really help the customer more. Uh, you know, for, in a place in you know, like Florida, a typical middle-class home might pay two to $3,000 for insurance. In Nevada, it's like 600. <laughs> so, you know, the, it just people think about it a lot more. It's a more important part of their life uh, so we'd rather be in those places where insurance is more expensive. Those two things tend to correlate pretty well, actually. Like in most of the bigger markets, the coastal markets, the big population centers, insurance does tend to be more expensive. Uh, those places tend to be more exposed to extreme weather because they tend to be coastal. Uh, the housing stock there is worth more. So that, of course, drives the cost of insurance up too. And then the other thing is that our tech is good everywhere. Like it really helps everywhere, but it helps us more in those markets where there's more extreme weather. Uh, and that's happening everywhere, right? Like the, the California and Florida, obviously, and, and Louisiana too, they're at the very forefront of, of being impacted, unfortunately, by climate change. And that will, that will impact everybody, I'm sorry to say. Uh, you know, so here in Chicago, where I live, like it's relatively safe right now. I don't think it always will be um, because the, just global warming is wrecking havoc on the climate. And so we really wanted to go to those places that were more climate exposed because our tech actually is really good at understanding which homes are going to be resilient to this newly extreme weather. And, and so it, it helps us in our, our relative underwriting results, I think, are better in areas like that, you know, the, than they would be in simpler market like Wisconsin, where I grew up. Okay. And so, as you just mentioned, more areas of the country have been seeing increases in weather-related property damage. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about how climate change impacts your business? Absolutely. So first of all, homeowners insurance is a growing, a growing industry. It's growing very quickly. It's growing because homes are, we're investing more and more in our homes, making them nicer. 
and because the weather's becoming more and more extreme. So that's really good for our business, actually, right? There's more premiums out there. Like even from when we started this business, it was about a hundred billion dollar industry, a little bit less. Now it's $110 billion, Sam, just a few years later. So it's growing. The other is that a lot of the competitor, a lot of the legacy competitors, they're really bad at, at adapting to change because of course they are. These are really old companies. They're not built to adapt to change. And so, you know, the types of changes that are happening, consumer preferences are changing. We talked a little bit about that. Technology is changing a lot. And now you have the weather changing. And so for a new company is able to come in and be really nimble and bring cutting edge technology and bring cutting edge data science. This actually creates an amazing opportunity for us because we can, we can sort of zig in and out of these opportunities and, uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's a business opportunity. Um, you know, we also like just as entrepreneurs, like inside of our company, this, we take it really seriously, right? Like this is something that brings a lot of meaning to us that we're helping people who really need us. And insurance is really important to the functioning of our economy. Like, especially homeowners insurance, you can't, you can't get a mortgage unless you have homeowners insurance. And this is something that takes up like 2% on average of people's income. So, you know, it's a hugely important part of people's lives, especially in these climate exposed areas. And, and, you know, without it, we can't survive. So it's, it's our, you know, we just feel really honored, right. To be able to like, provide this service to people and do it really well, do it really efficiently, do it really high quality. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's a very meaningful uh, task that we're undertaking. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and I actually, that was, goes right into what I wanted to get to next, which is, you know, into how you, you find those qualitative differences in, in terms of how your data infrastructure works. You know, we've had interesting discussions on this podcast with other companies about how big data and machine learning can revolutionize things like ad targeting. And could you just walk us through about how your platform crunches the numbers on risk for individual properties? And, and what are some data points that the average person might not think about, but that play a role there? Yeah. So, uh, there are a lot of things about it. So one thing that makes it hard is homes are so idiosyncratic, right? Like you and I could be next door neighbors and have totally different risk profiles because you might have a new roof and I have an old roof, but your roof has the shape and my roof has the shape. So I'll just talk through one example, which is the impact of the roof. So with a roof, there are really three things that historically insurance companies have taken into account. The shape of the roof, because when it gets really windy, if you have an angled side, that is pretty good. Like the wind sort of goes over it. But if you have a flat side, the wind will bump into it and actually can go under and lift the roof off. It's sort of like a sail. So up here in the north, a lot of the times you'll have roofs that are angled on two sides and flat on two sides. It's called a, a gable roof. Uh, if you go to Florida, you'll see a lot more roofs that are shaped like a pyramid, basically. It's a hip-shaped roof. And then, of course, you'll have a lot of roofs that have sort of complicated shapes, right? Like most of it might be hip but it might have a few gable surfaces for a window or a garage or a family room or something like that. And so understanding the shape is really important. The old way you'd basically ask the user or the agent, hey, what's the shape? And they'll tell you, and usually they'll be reasonably accurate, except they will lose a lot of the granularity of those subsurfaces, right? So by understanding that, you can actually tell, oh, this roof is not 100% hip, like the user might think, it's only 85% hip. And that actually creates a really big difference because that one flat surface, the wind can hit into it and it can puncture the home and actually lift the roof right off of the home. So that's, that's, so by, that's one where it's like everybody has the notion that this is a predictive variable, 
but they don't have a good data set for it. So you're relying on the user. Now, the next one you have is the material on the roof, right? And there's actually lots and lots of different types of shingles if you're able to figure that out. And of course, asking the user isn't a really good way to figure it out because I don't know, do you know what kind of shingles are on your roof? <laughs> Most people don't. And then the last one is, is age that typically people will use. A typical insurance companies will use age, right? Because it's a proxy for, is your roof still in good shape? Does it still have useful life on it? And again, they're relying on the user or the agent to tell you that. And a lot of people don't know how old their roof is. And the agents, this is a really tricky thing because the agents, they spent all day in these insurance carrier systems. And typically in sort of the old model, you'll have one agent who might represent like 10 or 15 different insurance companies. And they know the underwriting rules and they know how to manipulate them. And so if a carrier might, maybe they have a higher price if your roof is more than 10 years old, guess what? They're gonna end up with a lot of nine-year-old roofs. It's because the agents know, right? They know that they can jam it in as nine and maybe the carrier doesn't check it and they get the customer a good deal. So those are all three where it's like the, the relationship is known, but there's no good way of putting the data in. Now we have really good way with all the different data sources we use, we're able to know specifically uh, the answer to each of these things. And then this is the kicker. We're actually able to add a new variable that nobody else has, or not very many people have, which is a condition of the roof. And we use, because remember the age is really just a proxy for the condition, right? You could have a 10 year old roof that's in really good shape. You could have a 10 year old roof that's not in good shape. Those are different risks. So with condition, we're actually able to use aerial imagery, run it through an image recognition algorithm, and it can notice like our shingles starting to curl up. Are there lines you know, of, of sort of discoloration that could tell you that the roof is beginning to age? So that's just an example, right? And there's actually thousands of different variables that go into this, uh, but we just talked about roofs for like four minutes here. It's just a lot of complexity and we're always getting better, right? We're adding more and more data we're generating the relationship of which of these data sources are predictive are predictive of claims being higher. Uh, and, and I think there's, you know, our models will get much better over time, even they're good now. And I, I think they'll continue to get better. Totally. And, and what I also just found interesting from your materials is how the kind of the data science you have in-house plays a heavy role in how you market yourself as well. And I imagine many of your competitors are largely outside outsourcing their ad technology work, but you've decided to make it proprietary to a large extent. So why is that? And what have you been able to accomplish with that approach? This is a huge, yeah, this is a really huge part of it because not only do most insurance companies, most big companies generally outsource their advertising in insurance, it's unique because they actually outsource most of all of their customer acquisition and servicing, right? They outsource those to these local agents who are like these two or three man shops on average operating out of a strip mall. And of course, they don't really have any technology for this, right? No insurance agency, no, nor, no none of these small local insurance agencies anyway, are using machine learning to target their ad spend, right? None of these guys, they might be buying a few clicks on Google, they might be buying some leads from a lead aggregator. They might be doing some direct mail on a small scale. It's just not quantitative at all. And so what we're able to do is actually tie our underwriting and our pricing, because this is another really big problem where you have the insurance company coming up with the underwriting and pricing and the insurance agent doing the marketing. You have this risk that the agent will actually end up marketing to customers that aren't an appropriate match for the carrier. So there's a lot of money wasted because the marketing is so untargeted. So what we're able to do is actually basically underwrite the entire geography, pre-underwrite it. And we run it through uh, 
through our underwriting rules, obviously. So we're not going to market to people we don't want. We also run it through like a, uh, a response rate model and uh, uh, a claims prediction model. And we're only going to market specifically to those customers that we really want in the portfolio. And you see this happen in other areas of financial services, like in credit cards, like Capital One is really great at this, right? If you get an offer from Capital One, you know that a lot of thought and analysis went into giving you that offer, deciding to give you the offer versus give your neighbor the offer, et cetera. That's where insurance is going because you have to tie these things together and you have to bring a lot of data to it. So what you, where you'll see that help, help us is our CAC is low. So we spend about $500 all in to get a customer. So that's about uh, 30% of the first year's premium. And then after that, it's, it's zero, right? And so we keep 90 plus percent of our customers from one year to the next. And so that really helps us because the old way of doing it is you'll pay the agent a recurring commission that typically is in sort of the 15% ballpark. So you're paying 15% every single year. Uh, and there's also a lot of cost to support those agents. So you see it really help us in our customer acquisition math. And then it also helps us in our loss experience because we're not getting those bad risks, the ones that we don't want, because sometimes they slip through, right? Maybe you market it to a customer you really don't want. They come to your site or through the agent and somehow they end up getting through your underwriting even though you don't want them. That's not a problem that we have as much, right? Because we're not even going to show them the ad if we think it's a customer that we don't want. Right. So what would you say has been the biggest hurdle for rolling out Kin thus far? I'm sure you guys have overcome numerous challenges. <laughs> um, has it been more on the product development side or the operations side? It was really on the regulatory side. So okay. when Kin started out, we were basically like a retail insurance agent. This is a long time. This is more than five years ago. And we had some tech wrapped around that retail insurance agency. Now we never liked that because it wasn't a customized product we were selling, right? Like we knew there were things the customer wanted to be different about the insurance product. And so then the next step, because we just didn't, we, you know, we didn't, it takes tens of millions of dollars at least to start an insurance company. In the early days, we didn't have that, right? So the next step that we took was to become an MGA, which is sort of like a virtual insurance company where you're doing most of the work, if not all of it, but you're outsourcing the license and the regulatory and the balance sheet to another insurance company. And there's a specialized ecosystem of insurance companies that do that. They rent out their infrastructure. Uh, it's called a fronting carrier. And so we did that for a couple of years and we were scaling really, really well, but we really ran into a lot of problems because it turns out that that sort of renting a balance sheet model, it's not, uh, it's not very permanent because they can always change the deal on you. And our board was always sort of decided, they were like, wow, this is really scary actually, because you have this single point of failure in this business that we're investing, you know, lots and lots of money and, and effort into. So at that point, we actually decided to create our own balance sheet. Um, but again, we never really wanted to be a balance sheet company, right? Like we're a tech company. We, uh, you know, we like the sort of tech recurring revenue thing. We don't want to be exposed to the ups and downs of the weather. And so we actually had to come up with a new structure uh, or it's really an old structure, but we sort of rejuvenated it. It's called a reciprocal exchange. And it's really, really cool because there's a risk pool, a risk, there's a, it's actually a separate unincorporated entity called the Kin Interinsurance Network. And that's an insurance company that's owned by our policyholders. And so they actually benefit when that does well. Uh, and then we get paid a management fee 
for managing that. So it really kills two birds with one stone because it gives us the sort of predictable SaaS like revenue that we like and our investors like, and it gives us an alignment of interest with our customers that our customers like. Uh, and so, so setting that all up, it took for, it took a long time and it created this like terrible chicken or an egg problem because, you know, we, we had invested. So this was in summer of 2018, we decided to make the shift. We got regulatory approval for that in the summer of 2019. So it took a whole year to get regulatory <laughs> approval to make this sort of business model pivot that we needed. And that was actually sort of longer than a lot of our investors thought. So there were like, there was a period of time where for a couple of months, we were like, we have our next round of funding here, but we need regulatory approval. <laughs> and it, we're just like holding our breath. And we we're like, is it going to come today? We think it'll come today. And at that, you know, we almost ran out of cash then. Um, so that was a really big thing. It was scary. I feel like most startups uh, have a near death story, <laughs> maybe, maybe more than one. And that was ours. Uh, but, you know, since we got regulatory approval for that in the summer of 2019, things have really been going very well. And since then, our hardest problem is just how do we scale this thing efficiently? Because it doesn't matter how good your tech is. It doesn't matter how good your people are. It is hard <laughs> to go from, you know, this year we'll do about four times the premium that we did last year. That's just a huge, huge growth rate. And, you know, making sure that we're staying efficient, not stressing everybody out too much, not killing ourselves by working every night uh, while still growing that fast is really hard. Yeah, and then speaking of products, what adjacent product categories do you think might present some opportunities and, and when might we see Ken getting into them? Yeah, so two really two directions. Um, one are other insurance products because the thing about the insurance industry is that the homer, homeowners, the type of people that own homes are demographically really great customers for other products, really good customers for auto insurance, really good customers for life insurance. And that's because homeowners tend to be higher income. They have more assets. They're at a stage of their life. Usually like our average customer is actually in, in her mid fifties, uh, which is about the same age as the average homeowner. Uh, and so they're just at an age and so they, where, where they, uh, you know, people that look like that tend to be good drivers too, which is why you'll see a lot of insurance companies offer these bundle discounts. The reason why they're doing that, or one of the reasons is because they know that homeowners tend to be disproportionately good drivers. Um, so we're really excited to get into some of these other insurance products, especially because like we already paid to get this customer and we already gave them this one really differentiated product. So for us to sell them another product, that product may not need to be as differentiated. Right. Like it could only be like an okay auto insurance product to use an example, but they'll use it because, you know, they're already our customer they know us, they like us. We already have a lot of data about them. And we're excited about that. We're also excited about doing non-insurance products that are related to the home. And so an example of this might be like a home warranty product, right? So now we're not just covering, you know, if your roof blows off, we're also covering if your dishwasher breaks. Right, that seems like a very natural synergy uh, product offshoot for us. Another one that we're looking at a lot is solar. Uh, we're really experts at people's roofs. We replace people's roofs. We fix them as an insurance company. Uh, we tend to do business in places where it's pretty sunny. And we're also really concerned about climate change. So we're trying to figure out how can we get into the solar business. And then as far as timeline, you know, we'll probably do like one big product launch next year sometime. 
And we're not going to be specific at this point as to which product it'll be. Uh, you know, but for us, you know, we have this one product that's working incredibly well. And that's going to occupy a lot of our efforts, just continuing to scale the existing product, uh, get more customers, add some more geographies. And uh, I think we have bandwidth to do one really big product push next year. Looking forward to that. Um, but moving over to the SPAC side of things a bit, you know, what sort of factors made you to decide to opt for a SPAC route rather than a traditional IPO or a private raise at this stage? Um, we, so we looked at all of them. And honestly, it was just Matt. He, he was really <laughs> compelling. Uh, yeah, it's, Matt, he'll introduce himself at some point. Um, Matt, you know, Matt showed up one day. This is in the, it's in the winter. It's in February of last year. It's freezing outside. No one's doing anything. No one's going anywhere because of COVID. And we had, we talked on the Zoom a couple of times. He's like, listen, why can't I come, can I come see you? Can we meet up? And we met up and we hit it off immediately. And we always are looking, like in all of our private rounds, we always added investors who could help us beyond just their money. And Matt showed up and he's like, I think I can help you. I think I can help you get more customers because you know I literally teach the class at Harvard on customer acquisition, direct to consumer. Uh, I think I can help you in Florida, which is your biggest geography because I'm the vice chairman of the Dolphins. And I think I can help you... Um, you know, in the real estate industry, because my partner is Steve Ross, who, who's the founder of one of the best real estate, one of the big, you know, related, which is this amazing, uh, you know, real estate behemoth. And we're like, that sounds pretty great. <laughs> let's, let's see if we can make this work. And so then, of course, we negotiated. He subjected us to like crazy, ridiculous, you know, uh, awful diligence, uh, looked at every <laughs> nook and cranny of the business. It was horrible, uh, you know, but, but I think it was, Thank I mean, you, by I, the way, I'm, joking, I'm joking a little bit. It was helpful, but, uh, but yeah, we just hit it off and we were like this, you know, it's almost, it's almost too good to be true, right? There's three ways that they can really help us get to access the public markets, take us to the next level. It's super exciting. Great. I, I wanted to ask Matt uh, next about what Omnichannel's process was like. It sounds like you now know absolutely all of Sean's secrets, mm. um, but just kind of going through it. I mean, how many companies did you look at and what made Kin initially stand out from the pack? Well, let me give you the, um, the quick logic of the SPAC too, and then sort of take you through the process. But sure. uh, I, I have a ton of different businesses in the consumer space, but particularly direct to consumer. And when I was looking at SPACs last year, seeing lots of different individuals get involved, it got a little bit too frothy, obviously. But uh, I saw this great study from McKinsey where they, uh, they they basically delved into different cohorts of SPACs to see if one would outperform another. And what they found is that not all SPACs are created equal and that the differentiator of ones that had outperformed were operator-led SPACs, uh, where the person at the top had you know operating experience as opposed to maybe an investor or a celebrity or something else, some other category. And what they found is operator-led SPACs tend to outperform the uh, the uh, SPAC cohort by 40%, the S&P even by 10%. And then they looked into why is that the case? And, and it may seem obvious, you know, in retrospect, but um, that operator-led SPACs tend to focus on what they know. By focusing on what you know, uh, you tend to be able to go deeper and you also could diligence a business, figure out, you know, what's true, what's not. And then they tend to stay with the companies longer from a governance standpoint because they want to execute what they told the market, right? So that was sort of the, the, the secret sauce. And I'm really passionate about it. Similar to what brought me to teach at Harvard, I felt like there was another way to do it. 
you know, and, and my vision with uh, the course that we put together at HBS is I've backed so many different direct-to-consumer founders and there are these like fundamental questions that I felt like should have been answered for their quarter of a million dollars at business school. Like, should I go on Amazon or not? And if so, when? That, you know, we created this extraordinary course over five days, 23 classes. I thought, well, can I bring that same mentality to a SPAC? Could I put under one roof these incredible consumer giants who are fundamentally mostly CEOs and founders and also obviously public company experts, deal experts under one tent, and then identify an incredible company that we uh, can, can take uh, to the public markets, but also do all the things that were identified in the McKinsey report. And that's what I worked on doing. I put together a team of, I believe, 21 different people, a lot of different founders. My partner, Gary Vaynerchuk, who's social media you know, genius, thousand employees in the firm we own. Christina Tosi, owner of Note Bar, does brick and mortar, omni-channel, like, every different type of, of leader that was reverse engineered to help the ultimate target, right? In my experience teaching at HPS or investing in companies, there are certain fact patterns that emerge over and over again. One of them being, if you have a great business with a performance marketing machine that's digitally fueled, but you haven't heard of them, it's probably because they don't really have the brand alchemy to create a great brand, right? It's kind of like Kin's uh, fact pattern, which we'll get into in a second. So my thought is let me put together an amazing group of people that you could not rent, that was very attractive, but frankly, to reverse a little bit of the dynamic of the SPAC dynamic, I mean, especially these days, you have all these SPACs chasing a limited number of deals, all competing for the same thing. I wanted to put together a group of people that were, that was very compelling, that would frankly give me the ability to make the best decision because I'd have options. So we ran a little bit of a reverse SPAC off, frankly. Uh, and um, and then I met Sean. And, it's, and, and right away, when you sort of break down what is Ken, what is Ken doing, right? It checked all the different boxes, boxes massive TAM, $100 billion TAM uh, in a change-resistant industry when the average competitor was around since the last pandemic. You know, like <laughs> that the the unit economics of Sean are amazing. A CAC to LTV ratio for those listening out there. I know this is a sophisticated audience, but CAC to LTV of 7.9 is, is unheard of. And in HBS, we generally say as a rule of thumb, three and over is a great business. Two is okay if you have a rocket ship. One is otherwise known as a failure waiting to happen, right? So when I looked at Sean and looked at the insured techs that are out there, frankly, I see a lot of businesses that are focused on, on, on relatively small TAMs with um, uninteresting CAC to LTV ratios, right? And with customers that frankly have a low dollar value, right? So the juice, you know, in some cases isn't worth the squeeze. My feeling was this is an extraordinary business and Ken, what they were missing was exactly what I thought we could bring. They were missing the sizzle but Sean built the state, you know, they've been working, you know, with their head down in Chicago for five years, built this incredible machine. Not a lot of people had heard of. I remember when I did that, who's Ken? What a great URL, by the way, <laughs> you know, like three letter, three letter word. Somebody was thinking through. So um, that's what we decided to do. I said, let me go ahead and work with Sean to help build a brand. And to Sean's point, it was a perfect setup. The, 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 the relationships we have in Florida is great. Let's bring in Bob, let's bring on some of the real estate expertise. Let's use Gary Vaynerchuk to help build a brand, which we put out this uh, campaign called Florida Man. I encourage everyone to go on YouTube and look at our, our take on Florida Man. Uh, just all that kind of work where we could add value. My hope is, and anybody listening out there, you know, hold me accountable in two years, that this will become a case study for when you can make a SPAC really work. The value that we're bringing to Kin is exponential what any bank would bring in a typical underwriting process, right? This isn't a deal, this is now a marriage. 
and I'm going to stick with the company for a very, very, very long time. I'm on the board. I have two board seats. So I'll stop there. But that was the thinking, uh, you know, a year and a half ago. I was like, let me try to do this differently and let me identify a great company that becomes also, you know, on a personal level, part of my legacy. Interesting. And and to Sean, what benefits do you see coming from the Omnichannel team specifically? And, and how do you think they might help amplify the brand? Yes, we talked about the three, right? It's like, it's mm-hmm. Florida and their connectivity there. It's Matt and Gary and how great they are at customer acquisition. That's the real estate angle. Um, I can tell you so far, like because we're working on this stuff. We started, I mean, Matt basically joined the team in March before the deal was even signed. And I'd say the two areas where it's really helped a lot are um, in making the brand better. Like Matt, Matt found this amazing guy who had worked on some of the like early Apple campaigns, like the Think Different campaign. And he came and he helped us really crystallize our brand message. Uh, and so I think what we came up with is really special. It's Kin, uh, where the insurance company built for the new normal. And it really encapsulates the fact that we're building this company for the future. And, and we, the world has changed a lot. And we're the insurance companies built for this world as it has changed. Uh, the Florida, it's not Florida, man, it's Florida man uh, ad that we did is this incredible like seven minute short movie and do you guys know about the florida man meme do you know what that is yeah like the headlines yeah so it's it sucks it's so unfair and we've wanted to do something about this forever we just didn't really know how until matt and gary came and showed us how to how to do it because it's like these government transparency laws in florida that make basically everything part of the public record and so whenever somebody does something really stupid and gets arrested for it, it ends up in a public record. And all these like clickbait websites online will take that and they'll say, Florida man does X stupid thing. And, and it makes, it really makes the state out to be this, like just amalgamation of dumb hicks basically, which is not like Florida is an amazing state. It's economy is growing really fast. It has beautiful weather. It's incredibly diverse. It's like, it's actually a really cool place. And so we wanted to repurpose that. And we made this ad that that's seen, it's gotten like well over a million views. Uh, it's gone somewhat viral. And people are watching this like for seven minutes <laughs> before they watch the content that they were trying to get to on YouTube. And they're sharing it with their friends. People have asked us to turn it into a TV show. Uh, it's just really, really funny. You know, and it's totally different than the type of marketing that you see coming from legacy insurance companies. Like it's not, it doesn't have an animal. Like it doesn't talk about saving you 15%. It doesn't have a bunch of terror. Like it's just, it's really creative and cool. And, you know, I think we'll be doing a lot more of that now. And, you know, I'm excited about all the other cool stuff we can do together too. And that's, what's really interesting about Ken and one of the competitive advantages is kind of nuanced, but the um, traditional insurance companies, right? Like they, they have to spend, you know, massive amounts of money to create air cover in a very inefficient way, you know, ads in the well, you know right field of Yankee Stadium and just all sorts of things that are top of the funnel brand awareness, but they ultimately have to re- rely on the agent to convert. And the agent, if, I don't know how many agents you know, and I know I have a lot of buddies who grew up in Queens and they're agents now, you know, they don't spend all day trying to figure out, you know, the alchemy of conversion. How do I, you know, go ahead and, and convert on LinkedIn and, and, and Instagram and are like, that stuff is always changing constantly, right? So what the advantage with Ken is, you know, the, the, everything is vertically integrated, including the marketing know-how. So part of the mandate with Sean is like, how do we create top of the funnel brand awareness 
but do it in a really efficient digital way with always keeping an eye on conversion. I know that's a long sentence, but so that you're not simply spraying and praying and hoping that the customer will come. Everything we're doing is build brand, but do it in a very disciplined, kin-like DTC way. What I find most fascinating about this business, no matter to Sean's point, in 10 years, the idea that you used to buy insurance in like a strip mall was just like, they did? Mom, dad, tell me about that. You know, <laughs> it'll be like, did they sell NFTs there too in New Jersey? <laughs> like, it makes no sense. It was a virtual product. So that's what's fun about this business. Like whether you fall in love, Ken, who's listening here, or you one day fall in love with somebody else, like this is how insurance will be sold. And it only isn't sold this way because it was dominated by industry players with monopolistic behavior and they didn't have to. And now they will have to. And that's what's so right. interesting about the pairing of you two is that, you know, because I think most people, when they think of direct to DTC, you know, they think about specific, you know, consumer products, you know, whether it's food or a mattress or this or that, whereas Kin is, is very different. And I, that's why it just makes it interesting to me, uh, you know, for you, Matt, how Kin came onto the radar initially. Um, you have very broad experience in, in DTC businesses, but, you know, were you, were you sort of looking for something where it's like, I know the business model, and if I can connect that to the TAM, you know, one that's much bigger than hot sauce, you know, there's something really there. By the way, that's a really smart point. You just hit on it. The whole premise of my course, the name of it's actually called Moving Beyond DTC because DTC is a fiction. It's a misnomer. All it is, is really an upstart looks to disrupt an industry. And it's like, I don't need to go to Whole Foods. I'm going to sell my stuff direct on the internet. And their CAC is like $4 in the beginning because they create a ton of hype on Instagram. That works with the early adopters. But then as you try to scale, you're like, oh, wait, acquisition is really expensive. It turns out Whole Foods has a very unique role to play, which is, is, is an intermediary. Next thing you know, they're back to being, you know, relying on an intermediary, except in insurance. And I would be very skeptical of any insure tech that suddenly finds itself once again relying on agents because it actually doesn't make sense. This is a product that is sold better, more efficiently, if actually sold direct because of all the ways in which the third intermediary disrupts the business model. It creates you know, margin leakage, but it also creates disruptions in underwriting. Hey, that roof is really nine years. Let's not say 10. You know, like all the different things that you happen. And so it's funny when we do, when I did this deal, everyone's like insurance, like why not sneakers, you know, or like an all birds or something, you know? And I think the answer is I, the, high, the highest and best use of the DTC model is a company that should be sold direct right? It's a company that really should be vertically integrated. And it's very, I can't even come up with another example, frankly, beyond this. I'm sure there are others, right? So that's what got me excited. Insurance now, now what also got me excited, for those who know, know that a lot of the insure techs that have gone out there, um, you know, it's just when you look under the hood, not being critical about anyone in particular, but just generally, they haven't lived up to the promise. And so as I did my work, I realized there's going to be a reckoning where people are going to get a little bit sour on the space and say, but wait, you said, you know, you can improve and your loss ratios would improve and they really haven't. And so when I looked at Ken and spent to Sean's point, the amount of diligence we conducted was rather painful, borderline cruel. But <laughs> after doing that work, I realized, oh, you really did build it. You built a machine that is able to underwrite with you know thousands of data points. You built an incredible sales force. You really did build a retention rate in the 90s and an NPS of 87. Like, you know, these incredible metrics, you did the work and the brand we can build together. So it, it but to your point, if I was being if I was placating some audience, you know, I'd say, well, I got to stick within some consumer good because that's what people think about. But because of the premise, of my course is moving beyond DTC and kind of rejecting it as a fiction. This to me is the most elegantly constructed pure play direct to consumer business that I had come across in my career.
And so that's why I jumped on it. And, and it's taken a lot of work, right? This isn't, you know, and, and the other last part I'll say is I always believe complexity becomes its own moat. You know, anybody could one day decide to compete against a DTC by launching their own sneakers on, on, on Amazon or something, right? If it's a consumer good, you can't wake up tomorrow and say you're going to create an insurance company. I mean, you could, like Sean did, but it's going to take you five years to do it. And by that point, Kin will be, you know, massive. So I do like the fact that it is its own complicated, highly regulated business that's, that's hard to compete with. Totally. And, and just looking ahead, you know, Matt, could you give us um, an update on the timeline uh, in terms of the deal and, and what investors should be looking for next? Yeah, we're, uh, the timeline is we're looking to, to uh, close in the fourth quarter. Uh, you know, obviously you don't control all the elements of this. So we're still going through our process with the SEC and regulatory approval and whatnot, but that's generally the timeline. Um, we've been at it for some time right now. Uh, and what I would encourage, we've, Sean believes in transparency and putting out information. I think we've done a great job constantly updating. So if you go to kin.com, you know, you'll see our analyst presentation. Uh, you'll see our most recent uh, uh, results. Uh, but there's just a lot of data, uh, information to process. And then on Kin's side, what's coming up next for the company that our listeners should be getting excited about? You know, we're, we're going to continue to grow. You know, and that'll be in our existing geographies. We'll also be launching some new geographies. So the homeowner's insurance market is like $110 billion. We're only in 20, right? So we're in three states or big states, but that's only $20 billion. So it's, a, it's about 20% of the market. We'll be launching some additional geographies. And we're really deliberate about this. We're not the guys that go and just try to make a land grab because we know that doesn't work. Uh, the underwriting and pricing, the data, uh, gets a lot richer as you're in a state for a longer period of time. And then of course, also our marketing efficiency gets better because, you know, people start to recognize us and they know that we're, we're, we're legit. Uh, they know friends who have us and had good experiences. So, but we will be launching some new geographies. Our goal is to be at about $50 billion TAM by the end of next year. Uh, so, so growth, uh, new geographies, we talked about new products sometime next year. Uh, those are all those are all the things that you should be watching for. Well, great. Sounds like you have a lot of exciting stuff ahead um, on, and really on, on both ends. And um, it's been a fascinating discussion both about, as we've been talking about SPACs, about insurance, about um, how you get a product to customers. And uh, this is going to be a fascinating company to continue to keep an eye on. Thanks so much, guys, for, for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you. Well, thanks for having us. We really appreciate it.